this episode, I'm joined by Richard Savile-Smith to discuss his book, Acute Religious Experiences, Madness, Psychosis and Religious Studies. I'd like to note that the beginning of this audio is a little bit up and down, and then we changed the recording devices about 10 minutes in. So I've done my best to repair the audio here due to problems with connection. I'd like to say a big thank you to my paying patrons and subscribers for making all of this work possible. If you'd like to support the podcast and keep all of this work running, then please find links in the description below. Otherwise, please enjoy. So... Richard Savile-Smith, thanks very much for joining us on Hermetics Podcast. Thank you. This episode, we are discussing your new book, Acute Religious Experiences, Madness, Psychosis, and Religious Studies, which was published by Bloomsbury uh, Bloomsbury Publishing uh, 2023 this year. And I should say, before we get started, they were kind enough to send me a copy of the book. So thanks very much to Bloomsbury. And this is a book firmly situated um, in the... Uh, in the area which is known as mad studies or you refer to it as mad studies but it's also really a a very um scholarly in a good way an academic and precise discussion uh drawing on many thinkers about what do we do about that peculiar overlap especially in the modern world where we've become predominantly secular and materialist what do we do about this peculiar overlap of religious experiences and we call them mad episodes or some people might call them mad visions or something like this. What do we do about this overlap? Um, and it's an extremely interesting book. But before we get started, um, just tell us a little bit about yourself, uh, what it is you do and how you came to write this book. Well, thank you very much. And thank you for having me, James. It's, uh, it's an honor and a pleasure. Uh, I'm, I suppose, a person, I'm 61. I just got my PhD two years ago in 2020, or two, three years ago, whatever, like that. I've been doing that for some time. Uh, this book is is much more than my PhD. It's like using the PhD as a diving board in which to kind of take a deep jump into the world, as you described, and as we'll discuss. Um, I live on the island of Skye. I don't, I'm intentionally an intentionally independent scholar in the sense that I have no aspirations at my time in life of trying to get a university job and work my way up through the the, the academic system. I, I think I missed that boat some years ago. I've had other careers doing public relations and uh, prior to that, I'm also a qualified chartered accountant, but I decided that there are better things to do with my life than that. Yeah, I mean, also, also, why this particular topic? Why, why religious experiences and madness? Well, because I'm also a mad person. <laughs> I, kind of, I, I didn't want to say it. I didn't want to say, it. and also, you're mad. But this is something you make. You know, this is something you make very clear early on in the book. That I mean, is this how you would refer to yourself? I mean, we don't have to get into yeah, specifics, yeah, yeah. but mad, you are mad a madman. Mad people have the privilege of being able to call themselves mad people without other. Other other people have more difficulty about it, but in 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 the world of madness, a mad person can speak their madness without any fear or favor. I mean, I don't I I don't mean to be rude at this point. So it's um, uh, this isn't a case of sort of a quirkily calling yourself mad. This is um, this no, I get lost this up. this. Um, <laughs> This, but but what I mean is, in terms of your book, in terms of writing about religious experiences and psychosis, uh, throughout the book, this and many some of the really the really great stuff in the book, the the sections I enjoyed the most, um, we'll get to right near the end actually, um, 
really were to do with this personal understanding of your your yeah. your, your own journey and in and your own subjective um investigations into these topics as someone who is uh you know diagnosed as what certain people would consider mad yeah it is it i'm a, i'm a mad person from a mad family and there are many like us uh it's just that you know because of the nature of the way madness has been stigmatized and the way it's pathologized and the way it has become something that you know there's a degree of shame about i suppose is that not so many people are only now emergingly and we'll no doubt discuss this further uh, it's a kind of an emergent thing for mad people to kind of stand up and say hey we're here and we've got experiences about how how life is and how you know we see the world of sanism and sanity and the the craziness of some of that in our experiences have a kind of um a recourse to our own authentic um, situation. And, you know, within religion, it's, and again, no doubt we'll get to this as well, is that 25% of people in secure uh, units of the West still, who are locked up, you know, in psychiatric units, still articulate themselves in religious terms. And this is something that's completely not discussed uh, really very much. Uh, and fascinates me the idea that religion could provide the metaphorical and linguistic scaffolding in which experience is um, well back into experience and that kind of feedback loop. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, before we get into uh, these discussions on uh, madness and psychosis and religious experience, as you said, I of course have to ask you the hermetics question. You can place three thinkers, living or dead, into a room and listen in on the conversation. Who do you pick? Well, number one, I'm going to have William James <laughs> because William James is, you know, he's he wrote a book called Varieties of Religious Experience, which before that was a set of lectures which he gave in Edinburgh, and uh, all my studies were in Edinburgh. My my undergraduate and my master's, my PhD were all in, Ed- all in Edinburgh. Uh, I think maybe I should have gone somewhere else as well, but mm-hmm. I did. I've been other places, I've lived other places, but my studies have been in Edinburgh. And uh, so William James and Edinburgh have that kind of natural connection there. And William Jameson, Religious Experience, he really kicks off the idea of religious experience as a category within religious studies. Um, but William James brings his his powerful psychological uh, insight into that whole thing and really sets the sets the 20th century into the 21st century. So he has to be there. He's also, you know, a remarkable, you know, uh, thinker, you know, beyond religion in the world of psychology and philosophy. And of course, you know, back in the end of the 19th century, psychology, philosophy, religion, you know, the kind of category, the disciplinary distinctions were vaguer. Psychology was only being um, emerging from the philosophy departments of Harvard, uh, where he taught around the time when he was there and he's very much part of that process and it's interestingly contrasts with more European you know emergence of psychology within the kind of Freudian uh, context where it emerges much more from a medical 
background is so you get this kind of contrasting worlds of a of a pathologized Freudian approach to religion and a much more philosophical and ambitious approach to religion in the world of James. Uh, the two met once, and uh, James is sarcastic and fairly negative about Freud without naming him in the varieties of religious experience. So they're very different approaches. Uh, the second person I would have in the room is Jesus, uh, because whatever you think about Jesus from uh, you know a religious point of view, he is a remarkable thinker. Um, of course, there's a degree of discussion and argument, and there's a whole biblical studies discipline that that has it out about how much of his words are reflected in the text and the whole process of transmission and so on and so forth. But if you allow that there's some element of a trace of the thinking of a person in that process, then he is a remarkable thinker um, who... For me, it's about the immediacy of his thinking. People tend to think about religion in terms of, you know, theology and, you know, the kind of wordiness of it all. Uh, but I, I take the view that everybody operates with their own metaphysics, their own private personal metaphysics, which are obviously socially, you know, constructed and related. But everyone is a metaphysician just as everybody is religious in the sense that in, in, in the world of religious studies, we don't think about religion as being you know, just a category of a particular religion. We think about religion as kind of more an approach to how one lives life and so on and so forth, so that the boundaries between religion and philosophy in the world that I operate in are much more blurred and we're much more interested in the philosophy of religion religion and religion as a kind of um, construct through which we view uh, how humans have operated in this world. So within that kind of wider framework, Jesus is remarkable for his kind of uh, immediacy, his immediacy of his um, operate of his capacity to understand and reflect back and talk about the kingdom of God by word kingdom and replace that with the word realm, with the the idea of heaven as an immediate experience in life as now. And within that, Jesus is has to be in that room. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. The third, and who would be your third? Yeah, I would have Jack Derrida. <laughs> 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 because how could you? How could it not be an interesting room to have William James, Jesus, and Jack, <laughs> Jack Derrida in the same room? And I and I think you know between Jesus and Derrida, there would be a very very interesting conversation about being a Jew in Palestine and being a Jew in Algeria. So we could have a very interesting conversation about Jewishness. And I kind of think of William John, James as taking the notes. And uh, the the idea of Derrida, who's very much caught up in the discussion, it, it almost like it's almost for me. And I mean, obviously, Derrida's a, a, a you know a, a set of complex texts, so different people come at it from different places. But for me, Derrida's almost as if he's trying to get to that point of immediacy which Jesus is living. 
through the quagmire of language and textuality and you know the you know in the whole kind of process of that and it's something about the the contrast between the jesus of the here and now and the derda of the roundabout uh process the nature of life and the nature of religion and the nature of whatever and as I say William James could probably be the note taker Mm -hmm. So do you you see that as a possible conversation one there that you already mentioned there of immediacy of people actually trying to really understand what experience is and how we can be in experience itself outside of all the, the pitfalls of certain hermeneutics and um assessments via different languages just to try get through to the truth of experience as experience 100% and the thing about experience is experience has been you know one of those philosophically uh, and you know scientifically experience was kind of pretty much erased you know kind of you know after you know william james wrote the varieties of religious experience and then positivism came along and so on and so forth and kind of wiped out ideas of experience. And what you've got now is a kind of resurgence in the late 20th century where experience is suddenly back on the table. And, you know, religious experience is not about religion. It's about experience constructed as religious. That's that's the main distinction. You know, when you talk about religious experience, you're not talking about you know the the machinery of religion, or the 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 you know authority power structures, or the the functionality of religion and what it does in the human history. You're talking about the experience of reality uh, articulated in religious terms, and you know that is very much what the kingdom of God uh, for Jesus is. Is it's an it's an immediate thing, an unmediated thing, a thing that's not mediated, which you know, he is then engaged in mediating through language, which is why you end up with parables rather than, you know, theological, doctrinal, philosophical texts, uh, which, you know, amount to, you know, hundreds of pages. Um, and for Derrida, you know, I think, I think, you know, what he's trying to do is to destabilize, you know, much of, you know, modernity and the way modernity is, has tried to kind of crank out this idea of being able to write down, you know, what philosophy, you know, means. And, you know, he's engaged in the in, in the destabilization of that whole process, but I'm not sure that it's quite the same as living in the moment. And that's what I understand the, you know, the the the, the crux of the issue that I'm interested in in writing about religious experiences to be about. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And how does this overlap with mad studies? And I mean, is mad studies a relatively new thing in the in the way that you're speaking about it? I mean, what exactly is that? Oh yeah, mad studies is a relatively new thing. Um, I mean, the last is kind of a twenty first century thing, I guess, uh, where mad mad people have you know are beginning to find that they not only have a voice, but that they've got something to say, and that if they say it in a way that is not just, you know, totally offensive, that, you know, it can be listened to, you know, they can make themselves heard. I mean, I think there's there's always a difference. Spivak writes about, you know, the 
the you know how to, how to you know can can a subaltern be heard? Is that right? I think it is. Can the subaltern you know, speak? The, the, can a subaltern be? Yeah, yeah. Can they speak? And the answer that she gives is that they can speak, but can they be heard? And you have the the whole kind of question of hermeneutic injustice and so on and so forth that falls with with Miranda Fricker and so on in that whole area, in that whole construct. And what MAD Studies does is it kind of locates itself somewhere within that zone, which obviously, I mean, you can start with Foucault's History of Madness and connect it up there, but he kind of raises the issues without delivering on the actual speaking because the MAD person doesn't really get to speak very much in Foucault. But uh, what happens in MAD Studies is that there is this, sense in which if we just talk about our experience then we can locate it within a tradition which you might you might locate with feminism with critical race theory with lgbtq plus theory you know where marginalized groups are basically standing up and saying actually we've got something to say about uh the world that we live in our experience of the world that we live in, and it's something that we can engage the academy within uh, to make sure that our voices can not only speak, but can also be heard. So there's a kind of great um, collection of people, uh, you know, for listeners, just Google Mad Studies, you know, you'll find it all there, um, of people who are trying to speak on... A lot of the time, people are speaking about madness uh, within the kind of psychiatric system and the response to that and so on and so forth. But, you know, for me, there's a much greater sense of trying to think about the role of madness in the whole of human history and culture. And that's really what I'm trying to do in my book. So I guess to really crack open this discussion, I mean, what is when someone has a, an experience, a mad experience, so to say, uh, in what sense can we differentiate that from perhaps some people would see, oh, well, if you're mad, then it's just a differentiation from the norm. But in what sense does a mad experience become, you know, its own thing, begin to have connections to something more, um, to something different, which we can draw draw from? Yeah, I think for me, you know, there's it's an intersectional issue there between madness and religion and religious experience. Uh, and it's just, I mean, it's, it's, it's always difficult to talk about madness as if it's like some homogenous construct or, you know, it doesn't really work like that. There's, there's a vast kind of, you know, there's a kind of diversity within that. And, there's, you know, there's lots of people who suffer a great deal from being mad. But what I'm trying to do within my book really is to identify the difference or distinguish between the idea of the kind of traditional pathologized madness of psychiatry, uh, which, you know, the the only mad people who come in front of psychiatrists generally are people who are in distress. So distress becomes a proxy for madness. And, you know, what I'm trying to do is to talk about madness, which is, you know, the, the, to, to identify and to articulate the fact that there is a vast tradition of, of phenomenologically similar symptoms of visions and voices and what would be considered by psychiatrists as mad symptoms, which do not, are not constructed by the person who has them as distressful and in actual fact, in contrary, are understood as being 
part of a greater, um, I suppose, you end up talking about God within this context. You know, it's, it's, it's the idea of a vision of God is not a psychiatric illness. A vision of God is an empowerment and a pivotal moment in the history of religions and the history of religious experiences. These are acute religious experiences. Mm-hmm. So when you look back and read, say, the mystics um, who who saw God, who had a, or had a more direct relationship with God, do you, do you yourself believe many of them may have today would be considered mad and that, that a lot of the discussion around madness is because our own context is very secular? Absolutely. They are considered mad. If you read psychiatric texts, psychiatry has been engaged in an ideological struggle with religion since it, you know, since its since its origin, since its outset, you know, a couple hundred years ago or whatever. It's a modernist discipline, and part of its power grab has been to uh, delegitimize uh, religion uh, for, you know, philosophical reasons, for power, reasons of power, and part of that has been to attribute madness to reinterpret religious the religious greats as suffering from various forms of. Uh, mental illness and mental disorder that so what i'm trying to do is to try and flip the conversation around and say well if the psychiatrists say they're mad but these are actually the people who have moved things on within the history of religion religions through their acute religious experiences then maybe we need to question the uh, negativity of psychiatry of this, the psychiatric reduction to distress and uh, pathology, and to open up a more constructive role for madness within human history. Do you think that reduction from psychology generally is actually causing a lot of damage, especially to mad people? Because by, you know, immediately by this reduction, they are put in the category of mad, and that in itself probably makes them feel in a has a sense almost of of like secular guilt around yeah. the way they naturally are. 100%. And, you know, it's the whole, the whole shame, you know, the whole stigma of, of, of mental illness. You know, when you get a mental, uh, you know, a diagnosis of mental illness, I mean, you know, people are trying to tackle this, you know, at the moment and whatever. But, I mean, as far as I'm concerned, the job's already done. You know, the, 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 the you know, psychiatry is one <laughs> in in that sense uh, because it's very it's very difficult to come out of a, a, a psychiatric ward and assert the authenticity of one's religious experience because the only way you get out of a psychiatric ward is by at least pretending to be sane, and you know you have this you have this problem that. You can say, you know, it's perfectly legitimate to say, you know, I mentioned right at the start that 25% of people still articulate their experience in religious terms. I'm not for a second suggesting that 25%, you know, that those people are all, you know, prophets who would have been, you know, of significance in any way, shape or form. But equally, nobody can suggest that none of them might have also been the prophets of today had not they been locked up and therefore their experience nullified and erased of significance. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And to to tackle this conversation, and and I I mentioned just before we started recording, I mentioned the emails, that when I first sort of opened this book and saw the 
so the 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 title page and then the, the contents page uh, the figures that you were tackling for me, I mean, it was just so interesting to see these figures arise. Some that uh, I had, I wasn't that familiar with at all. But, you know, for instance, um, Mercier Eliar, William James, Otto, Osterreich. These are very um, peculiar and, to be honest, in a sense, marginalized figures now for, for various reasons. And so why did you choose this selection of, of, of theorists to to attend to the book they all have their own reasons of course but uh, was it was there a singular reason why these as a group uh, worked for you well as as i'm sure is is common in research you know you don't you don't begin with a fully formed idea <laughs> it just mm. it just all kind of comes along as you bump into connections and join dots and see how all things work but eventually i came up with with this idea because what i was trying to get to was was uh, a way of constructing a, an idea which challenged the path, the reduction of uh, experience to pathology by psychiatry. So I was looking for a kind of idea of a non-pathological madness. Mm-hmm. Yeah? Mm-hmm. And so I kind of got into this idea that let's call it by different different names because this this doesn't exist within the literature. There isn't a kind of non-pathological madness. That doesn't that's a mad studies construct. That's something, you know, as it were, I, I kind of was fumbling towards in my own attempt to speak it. Um so I got into this idea of looking at experience and people who were talking about experiences, and then I had to find a a way of like saying, well, what kind of experiences are we talking about? And it was fairly obvious that you could talk about them, um, you know, in terms of visions, in terms of voices, in terms of possession. These were these were obviously kind of experiences. But to kind of abstract from that to another degree, I kind of came up with this very ugly placeholder, which I really liked because it was so ugly and so clumsy, which was the idea of extraordinary anomalous extreme so extraordinary oblique anomalous oblique extreme experiences now extraordinary the category of extraordinary anomalous oblique experiences doesn't really trickle off the tongue in any kind of slick or poetic manner but what it does is it gives me something that i can look for within the literature of the 20th century in order to find theorists who were in that zone mm. and it was that that was the criteria that i used of people who were talking about subject matter that fitted into the zone of extraordinary anomalous extreme experiences so necessarily that includes mysticism it includes shamanism it includes possession it includes um the psychedelic experience um all of these things are you know i'm not you know i'm not Trying to make it like a a, a a line which you know people kind of are there you know the, the box is ticked I'm using it as a device in which to trouble the literature of um the 20th century talking about that that that, that these kinds of experiences and what I found was that you know starting with William James was a kind of you know William James is great this because he's he's the only one of the theorists that I, I tackle seven theorists and you know I'll explain why I don't do more in a second but I tackle William James but William James script because he has a thing called the pathological program he has a pathological program in which he accepts 
the medical reduction the the of what he calls the medical materialists. But then he qualifies this and says just because people had were are reducible to being mad doesn't invalidate their contribution. And by following a pathological program, he kind of engages in the world of madness as a non-reductionist in, at a non-reductionist level, which allows madness to breathe constructively. And that that's a really useful thing. I, I did consider just using the pathological program as a thing, but it doesn't it gets a bit you get a bit stuck in James if you do that. So the extraordinary anomalous extreme kind of is a move beyond that, which is in a criteria that you can engage other theorists. And what you find is, as you read, is that I was able to kind of discover a discourse in which these different, these seven different theorists that I tackle have all read some or the other of the others. You know, they've all, mm. they've all engaged in each other's texts to some degree. So Rudolf Otto takes on William James and he's Rudolf. Most of it, it was fascinating because most of them don't like each other that much. Mm-hmm. Want to impose their own theories and replace the theories of their predecessors and explain why their predecessors were all wrong and why they've now got it all right. But you know, hey ho, that's that's pretty common in academia, isn't that? I mean, that's more or less how it works. So there's no real surprise there. And I discovered that you know, if you if you if you you could if you worked it through historically, you could start at James and then move through Otto uh, with the with this idea of the numinous which has been totally watered down since Otto expounded it, but we'll get to that. And you know, so there's James, Otto, Osterich, Eliade, uh, Walter Stace, Walter Panke. I've never heard his name pronounced properly. Panke, let's go Panke. Uh, and Abraham Maslow with his idea of peak experiences. These are all people who are talking about extraordinary, anomalous, extreme experiences, and they've all kind of read some or the other of their predecessors. So they're all in the same game, even though they come from completely different... um, And they're all white. They're all men. They're all, you, you know, kind of, you know, mostly... Well, they're all American, European, or European, but they come from philosophy and psychology and religious uh, history and so on and so forth. So they're a diverse crew, but that's because the subject matter itself of extraordinary anomalous extreme experiences is, you know, has no subject. Mm-hmm. It, it's a transdisciplinary subject, an inherently transdisciplinary subject. And, you know, obviously that's also a matter of fascination for me. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I mean, just to stay with James, because I sense a tiny bit of... Um maybe not hostility, but a tiny bit of pushback from yourself against James. You you, you state something which I think is really interesting. No. You mentioned... Uh, oh, pushback, yeah. Pushback, yeah. William James equates higher with better. Do you, do you consider that an error that the, the religious experiences or the experiences that we're talking about, this notion of something in quotation marks there of the, the higher, the above, as being better, or even being in, you know, the very word higher, you know, present something as like superiority do you see this as an error no i don't it's not it's not quite an error it's much more of an error in maslow who does the same thing but does it in spades you know he's really up for his hire uh introduces which has a kind of you know you know sense that you step up the ladder and he mentions the idea of a downwards ladder as well so he's got a bit of that going on so he does have a higher lower thing but the difficulty with james is not really in his mystical ladder though i mean you know, 
I don't think it's a great metaphor, and I kind of flip it on its side and, side and turn it into a normal distribution curve, which seems a lot more appropriate for the 21st century. Uh, but, you know, the, the, the difficulty with James is a bit, I push back on James, uh, and it's, you know, you know, with utter respect for the, for, 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 for his dude and for all that he does, is that there's a bit in which, and I guess it's in order, it's a kind of, un, how do you say, it's a, it's, it's a, it's a, it's a not consciously laid out circumscription of his topic, is he wants to talk about mysticism. Mm. But he creates this idea that there are two halves of mysticism, and one half of mysticism is the mystics, and the other half of the of mysticism is the insane. Mm. And the insane, you know, have no textbooks. You know, they have no voice apart from in the textbooks of psychiatry about the way the, the the voices of the mad have traditionally been silenced within psychiatry. But by dividing uh, mysticism, the totality of mysticism into two halves, then he creates all sorts of conceptual problems, which you know, you know, require a degree of critique. You know, without you know taking away from James the fact that he's got it, that 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 being mad is not equated with being bad because he equates he, he puts madness and insanity within the same frame of a greater mysticism. But the difficulty then is that he then goes on, and again, it, it's just metaphor. So you may, you know, if you'd had this conversation back in the room with Jesus and Derrida, I'm sure they'd just sort this all out. It wouldn't be a problem at all. But he then describes uh, uh, madness and mysticism as coming from the same root, but as being the seraph and the snake. And the, the difficulty with the seraph and the snake as metaphors is that it's very to construct them as coming from the same root. And in a world where James is, is all and talk about fruits, it's difficult to understand just exactly what he's doing in that particular part of his text. It's kind of like an inconsistency in his own work. Mm. And I, I, I don't think it takes away from what he's doing. I just think that we need to be clear that, you know, the mad are a much, much greater, you know, population than the mystics. But his connection of mysticism and madness is something that is absolutely woven through the whole of the the varieties of religious foresight uh, back in 1901 and 1902. What would it be for you, for this for this discussion, for, for the discussion that you're having in the book, in terms of a sort of, um, not necessarily a conclusion, but... Uh, something sort of, I guess, hopeful. What is it for madness to become fruitful? You know, amidst your studies, I I sensed this this notion of really trying to pick at something as a means to find a way for madness to become something other, to, uh, to, to exit this sort of reduction and sanitization and to a certain degree a quantification. But you have your own quantification of mystical experiences, which is quite interesting. But what would it look like for, you know, in the future for madness to exit all these boundaries and to become something that's at the same time not harmful and understood as what it is, but also to become fruitful as, as its own discussion? What would that look like? 
Well, I, I can come to that on a couple of different levels. I mean, I mean, I would say that my that really you're talking about process rather than an end, and I don't think there is an end. I think that you know what's happened is that we've changed the way that we um, you know talk about mental illness and psychiatry and so on. You know, there there is a kind of you know it's a dynamic change in the in the in 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 the discourse even in the last twenty years and so on and so forth. But I mean, I think I, I, what I see is I see my book as being a contribution to exactly what you're talking about, which is to realize that, you know, what I'm trying to do in my book is to say, hey, let's, it, it, the fact that we didn't talk about, the fact that madness has only ever been talked about as being negative and shameful and pathological in psychiatric terms has meant that our eyes have been closed to the contribution of madness in human history. And what I'm trying to do is to argue for a, a re-evaluation of, you know, the whole of human history, the whole of human experience. And, you know, I'm not, I mean, the discussion, the part of the discussion we've had so far has been quite framed within a kind of Anglo-American white context. But, I mean, I'm, I, you know, in my book, I take on, you know, the subject of possession and so on and so forth. And within the role of madness as a not necessarily pathological phenomenon, as being part of the constructive process within theories of, and practices of religion since the beginning of human uh, of humankind. And that what I'm trying to do is to encourage or discuss or open up a realisation that Madness is actually part of some people, not everyone, because I'm, you know, I'm happy to. You've got to talk about humans in a non-homogeneous manner, and that homogeneity is 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 unhelpful in discussing diversity. But if you if you think of madness, of the contribution of madness as being constructive, or you construct it as constructive, and you show how it has been part of the religious experience of humankind in shamanism and mysticism in um in, in the prophets in you know the religious greats of the of the abrahamic religions and so on and so forth in jesus and muhammad and all of these people you know the madness is actually part of what has fundamental to the history of humanity then what you do is you Psychiatric um, terms and, and diagnosis, and the you know the, the the manuals of psychiatry. That's one level. On the other level, I think there's a challenge to psychiatry, which I'm also making about how we treat what they call the mad. You know, well, what they call to you know kind of psychiatrically technical about to in 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 in. in, in right here but if you think about psychosis and dissociation um then you know in particular visions and voices and dissociation in the dsm-5 the diagnostic and statistical manual the fifth version of which is now a text revision just published last year they actually insert the word possession the ancient word possession directly into the text of the um dissociative identity disorder chapter so you've got kind of visions of voices kicking around around in the, in the schizophrenia and other psychoses chapter 
and you've got possession kicking around in the dissociation chapter. And but but the thing is, that it's always it's always done as mental disorder. And what I'm interested in is that if you look at shamanism, and again, this is something that's picked up within psychedelic research, where people are inducing states of consciousness. Uh, but there's this idea that there can be a kind of constructive element within that, in that you know perhaps psychiatry needs to think, think more out of its own trying to get people to go back to normal and think about the experiences they've had so that letting off as being something that you want to erase or, you know, you know, to how to make you a better you. And that is something that, you know, traditions of religious practice in possession and shamanism and so on and so forth can actually provide ancient and historic signposts to psychiatry and say there are ways where we can take extraordinary anomalous extreme experiences and see them as can be used in a constructive manner because you know it's that's something for the future but as a signpost i see my book is is signposting backwards and saying the prevalence of madness is much greater in human history than we think and forwards to say there's not only negativity within this, there is also we must look at it from how it is possible to construct non-pathological visions and versions of madness in the future. It's an odd question then, but I guess what do you, what do you see the future of madness as being? What does that look like? I, I don't really see madness as having a future. I see people as being mad and I see see it in personal future terms i see their them contributing to a discourse which recovers madness sanism in the sane world that we live in you know where you know violence and all these things the the small gods that we've bowed down to worship are you know exposed for being so completely futile and useless uh that they require to be rethought better and I think that you know a mad critique of this same world is something that you know this is I'm I'm not new in saying this I'm continuing a tradition of, of that but I think that what's happening now within the mad studies and within certainly the area that I'm talking about is that we're getting to you know how you know there there's there there's a, a discourse that is being developed it's being, you know, engaged with a, a more, you know, within universities and within, you know, the, the systems that we operate within. And in that madness can be, I often talk about and say that being mad, you know, is perhaps, you know, well, a position of critique. I, I guess that's the easiest way. I see madness as becoming a position of critique where we say that really not that the world is mad like that but really that the world is not mad enough what would you perhaps say to those who would still consider madness simply this sort of uh error of the psyche of uh of something something has just gone wrong with uh uh 
you know the word the word still sort of uh, has that connotation um how can you open up that conversation to 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 change that view wherein madness and psychosis are seen inherently within that sort of negative shameful shameful light because that's the, to me well, it still, still seems to hold prevalence especially within uh, sort of modern media right the, the notion of this person is insane this person is mad uh, that that generally that means that they're some sort of murderous person or something like that yeah, normally with a samurai sword, uh, they, um, because they samurai swords, I don't know what it is with samurai swords, the media loves them. But the, the, the thing is that I think this is part of what the Mad Studies project, if one can, you know, I mean, there isn't, you know, there isn't a kind of Mad Studies leadership and a Mad Studies organization or, or whatever like that. It just doesn't work like that. But the, but the thing is, I think that this is part of what mad studies is engaged in is a reclamation of the word madness from the world of mental disorder and you know the language of mental disorder and psychosis and uh, mental illness is a language of psychiatry whereas the language of madness is is referring you know it's built into it is a much more ancient construct in which madness you know which predates uh you know psychiatry and by 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 recovering and reappropriating a language of of diversity where diversity includes madness, then you know, I mean, the difficulty is to say what the difficulty with all this discussion is that nobody's trying to say that being mad is good mm. and that being not mad is bad. You know, I mean, the, or the you know, it's not a simplistic thing. It's it's more a question of like how can we talk about madness more constructively? And what what I'm arguing in my book is is that for, for too long, theorists in the humanities and social sciences have, have hidden away from the language of madness and, and have sanitized their subjects in order to make them not mad, mm. in order that they can save them from the reductionism of psychiatry. <clears throat> and and that, that, that that's what I'm talking about and this more constructively because sanitizing madness is like, you know, blocking it in the attic. It's like, you know, hiding it away. And there, there is, you know, just as, you know, kind of gay people had to come out of the closet, you know, mad people have to come out of their own um, fear of talking about, you know, the experiences that they have. And we need to find ways of talking more constructively about the role of madness in human history, for instance, which is what I do, without trying to then say somehow that makes being mad good per se. Because obviously for zillions of people, just as William James distinguished between, you know, the mystics and the insane, for lots of people, being insane is a very distressing and, 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 and negative experience. And, you know, the idea that you might try and kind of gloss that over or pretend that it doesn't exist is not right. Mm. But what one then has to not do is to then paint that distress and that negativity across the whole subject so that madness has, there's a category error that is going on basically where you have to recover madness as a category in which there is both good and bad. And, you know, how you argue about that, I mean, William James ends up kind of dividing it down the middle and saying half and half. And I'm saying that's, you know, patently not right because, you know, I actually went and checked with Harvard, um, 
with McLean Hospital, uh, in, uh, which is the hospital associated with Harvard University. And I cheekily asked them how many beds they had in Harvard, uh, in McLean's back when William James was there. And the answer came back, they had 180 beds. But William James's whole the Varieties of Religious Experience only has 180 case studies in it. Mm. You know, McLean's is just one hospital out of many. So it's perfectly obvious that the the... the the distressing aspect of the hospitalized mad is much, much, much greater than the mystics. But if you see them as being part of the same subject matter, mm. then you begin to open up the idea of a porosity, of a of a of a capacity to move between mad is bad and mad is good. So that you know, and it's it's kind of again, you know, the analogy would be within psychedelics where you have good trips and bad trips. You know, the you know, it's not. It's not the quality of the outcome, the quality of the experience is distinct from the phenomenology of the experience. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Well, I, I want to bring something in because I know you were you were keen to bring it in yourself, and it was one of them. It was a such a peculiar peculiar chapter, um, and to really, uh, I guess, to get down to the specifics of what we're talking about here, you have a you have a chapter called Jesus as a case study. You know, you, you're doing this thing where you're assessing as you've said the history of of humanity really in terms of things which we have viewed a certain way now viewed in a different light madness religious experience etc you have a chapter where you view the life of Jesus Christ as a case study in relation to the DSM5 um now there's a lot going on in this chapter so I won't try uh, yeah. overview it myself but I mean uh, yeah, just give us some insight into this, into this, what this case study, you know, what the purpose of this is and why it's so important yeah. for the book. Because it's really like the, the the grand finale of the book in a way. Yeah. The, 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 I'm not going to try, try and explain it all year. People have to read it for themselves. But what, what I can do is I can contextualize it and, and give some indicators. And there's a couple of things. The first of all is fascinating is that when I started my PhD, what I wanted to do was to go into um, a locked ward, mm. which I'd been in myself, mm -hmm. uh, and and I, I know my way around locked wards. And, to, to, and what happens in locked wards is that you have the smoking room, mm. uh, and, the, and the smoking room is where you know the you know oh, it's the most curious thing. But you know Foucault has all this idea of the panopticon and all this where the you know where everyone can be seen and so on. But the smoking room never there's no oversight. In smoking rooms, and smoking rooms are the the mad heart of madness in a in a locked ward, and and I would go and talk to people who articulated their experience in religious terms, whilst they were in a locked ward, and you know I think the the project was called listening to psychosis, mm. and I spent a year and a half trying to persuade an ethics committee, no three ethics committees to pass my research. Uh, and I had a team which included a professor of psychiatry, three consultant psychiatrists, two senior registrars, and my two religious. So the people who ran the locked ward wanted my research as qualitative research into the articulation of a relig of religious experiences of psychosis in a hospital setting. And could I persuade 
the ethics committees of the 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 the, 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 the to, to accept this research and sign off? No, I could not. So I spent a year and a half trying to do that, and in the end, I complained about it and uh, took it to a complaint process. And their their response to the complaint was that as someone with a lived experience, I might compromise the the the, the care of, of the psychiatrists or something like that, mm. something very similar to that. And I and I was just flabbergasted because here were all these psychiatrists advocating I did the research, and here was an ethics committee making up which had no experience. They weren't made up of people from psychiatric with psychiatric experience. Here was an ethics committee imposing their idea of the fact that by listening to people with religious psychosis, I would subvert psychiatry. And I find this, you know, I think this still is extraordinary, and I hope to go on and write papers about this and, you know, talk about this further. But what I found was that in order to progress my PhD, I had to, to, you know, change tack. And so I had to reach somewhere that was outside of the control of the ethics committee. And because I was doing my PhD in the School of Divinity at the University of Edinburgh, the idea of doing Jesus seemed like, you know, you know, a weird, not, there's nothing the ethics committee could do about that. <laughs> <laughs> so, and then when you get into the Jesus thing, what you discover is that at the turn of the 20th century, there was this huge effort uh, from Denmark and France and America and Norway of psychiatrists trying to uh, write off Jesus as mad. Mm-hmm. As part of what I discussed earlier, either this conflict, this systemic conflict between the secular, secular modernist instinct of psychiatry, and in in its tussle with religion, and you get that you realize that you know if they can nail Jesus as as mad, you know, as a nut job, as a you know, as mentally disordered, then you know their job is done mm-hmm. because it's very difficult for religion, organized Christianity, to recover from the idea that Jesus was, you know, was mentally disordered. And so you get, you know, they get, get you know, the book by a chap called Beanie Sangley, which is four volumes on the madness of Jesus. You know, it, it was a really serious bunch of work. And what you get is you get this fascinating thing whereby theology and biblical studies and, um, you know, biblical studies kind of become – they're all in transition and they're all kind of taking on board modernity and they're starting to get into textual criticism and so on and so forth. But the direct attack on Jesus is met by like one text by a guy called Albert Schweitzer about the psychiatry in Jesus, mm. which is a really short text. And it's really, um, you know, if, it's one being, if one was being critical, it's not his greatest work. But otherwise, the whole of religion just blanks the conversation and goes off and just carries on. You know, it says, you know, the, the best way of getting through this is just by ignoring it. So you get a whole kind of empty 20th century where the sanity of Jesus is not something that's up for discussion within biblical studies. It's just not. And the whole idea, because it's, you know, it's, it's, it's you know, it's too unscientific because you can't get inside the mind of a single person. Therefore, you know, we're going to kind of use modernity as a reason to not discuss an individual case study such as Jesus and so on and so forth. And, uh, you know, I kind of got into this and I, you know, I read Gospels and I'm not familiar with them anyway, but I read them with a particular thing in mind, which is to say, if you think about extraordinary anomalous extreme experiences, the way I do, 
in the way I'm arguing my book, then there are always events, mm-hmm. and we'll take that in a Derridean sense. And <clears throat> there are always events. They're not. It's not a continuity. It's not a static state. It's an event. These are experiences. They begin and they, you know, happen, and then they they have consequences. And there's a whole kind of language of ictal, uh, ictal events and pre-ictal and post-ictal and inter-ictal, which I won't go into here. But that's the kind of language that exists within physiology and you know other parts of medicine already. Mm. But looking, if you read the gospel as looking for events in Jesus's life, then there are two events, which is the baptism and the transfiguration, where Jesus things happen to Jesus instead of Jesus happening to others. So everywhere else, Jesus is healing people and you know speaking to them and doing all the things that Jesus does in the Gospels that you know people know about. But in the, in the baptism and the transfiguration, there are visions and voices of of God mm. in both of those particular instances. And the 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 I what I did was I reread the Gospel story, saying these events are disproportionately important. Because episodes of madness, events of madness, are disproportionately important in people's lives. Mm-hmm. You know, it's not something you get over just like that. It's something that has consequences. It's something that lives with you. And if if you then read Jesus's uh, ministry, well, Jesus's story is is you know his life story, then then the baptism is the transition from being nobody to being somebody trying to work out what to do, you know, what it was that was possible that they could then do, okay? Mm-hmm. So we're going to take away any idea that, you know, there's some kind of destiny and all that, you know, let's forget that. That's what people do ex post. Let's just put yourself in the mind of being Jesus and at the baptism in this great big crowd of people where you've gone all the way down to the Jordan and there's a long way and you've been baptised and then you're off into wilderness, reeling into wilderness for a period of time seeing angels, hearing voices, uh, trying to figure out, dealing with the hubris or the risk of hubris of what it might be to be uh, a grandiose person because the whole relationship between grandiosity and hubris is a very uh, complicated line that uh, mad people have to kind of uh, figure out, shall we say. We can talk about that for a long time, but just to keep the thing taking along here and then so he comes out and then after that the ministry happens and the ministry you know the 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 blind are given sight the lame are made to walk the you know demons are cast out so on and so forth all these things are then done and then you get to this kind of point of the transfiguration where there's a kind of petering out of the the, the kind of process because I don't want to do this whole biblical studies thing. I mean, people can read the book. But the transfiguration is a kind of completely other, again, extraordinary, anomalous, extreme event, which, again, has a pivotal role because after that, there's a complete direct line to being killed in Jerusalem and being killed by an institutional uh, methodology is in... You know, Jewish terms. It, you know, this is what happens to the prophets. Jesus in the in the Gospels it says, you know, this is how the prophets die. They go up to Jerusalem and they're killed. And what I'm trying to argue is that these two pivots of the baptism and the transfiguration. If you read the Gospels, 
around those two pivots, then you go from Jesus is nobody, Jesus is somebody who's trying to deal with every single individual who's right in front of him, to Jesus who's trying to deal with the problem of humanity at a systemic basis by dying. Okay? Mm. And it's not a question of imposing rationality or theology or whatever in it. It's a question of how plausible is my argument in terms of the gospel narrative. And I'm saying that my argument is absolutely plausible within the terms of the gospel narrative and kind of makes a different sort of sense about it because what you end up with is that Holy Week is not some set of contingent events. Instead, it's an improvised process in which Jesus is deliberately and intentionally trying to get himself institutionally killed because that is what has to be achieved. And you get this amazing standoff because you have the triumphal entry, which is very, you know, offensive to uh, in, 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 in the Passover context because biblical scholars will tell you that Pilate was entering by a different gate in his own procession. So it's like a counter-demo. And you'd expect the, the authorities to step in and take him out right there, which doesn't happen. So the next day, there's overturning the money changers' tables. Still nothing happens. Then it's preaching against the, 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 the authorities and so on, and still nothing happens. Then it's cursing, blaspheming against the temple, and still nothing happens because you've got the standoff where the authorities are too frightened of the crowds. And, yeah. You can you know you know the story, and then you've got in my version the idea that you have to open back channels uh, with uh, with the authorities to take him out at, at night, and that's where Jesus is no longer a traitor but instead a facilitator, and this all makes sense because Jesus doesn't defend himself; he allows himself to be killed, and so if you see it that way around, and if you look key the transitional points of the baptism and the transfiguration as extraordinary anomalous extreme experiences, then you just get a different and in my view more coherent reading of what's actually going on. Well there's one there's one because um, there's so much there I think uh, people will be intrigued to go read the book and to de- delve into that whole case study. But there's um as I said earlier, the 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 section that I found uh not necessarily the most enjoyable but uh most intriguing was was the section where you you it almost and i mean this in an, in a friendly way it almost came across as a as like a a rant in the defense of madness in a very nice way at the end of the book um well nearing the end of the book and you one thing really intrigued me that you basically state that people should stop interrupting mad people and what do you mean? What do you mean by uh, what is it for a mad person to be interrupted? Well, you know, I, I I hesitate to speak for for madness because there is no spokesperson. You know, we all speak out of our own experiences, and I can only speak for myself. But my, when I am mad, uh, the the there is always there is always the, the way I the way I phrase it in the book is. Um, when and and I'm sure it's there somewhere. Is it is it when I when I am saying I'm an atheist, but when I'm mad, I'm driven by the hand of God, mm-hmm. and that is what is going on in my madness. Is that I am engaged in a process, and you know the details of it don't really matter because it's just whatever it is. Uh, and you know it's more or less grandiose, and you know I've learned in the different times that I've been mad to be more you know more how do you say 
um, more, how do you say, uh, more, more, more accommodating to the process. So the first time, well, one of the first times I was mad, I started off in, in like the, the you know, the north of India and ended up in the south of India on a drip for four days, um, you know, with, you know, having no disrespected myself my physical and you know you know eating and drinking and all that sort of stuff so much that you know i ended you know I, you know i ended up on a drip for four days um but the the but you know the last time i was mad ended up you know building a nest in a five-star hotel because i could tell it you know i knew that i had to look after myself better whilst doing whatever it was that i was doing and is is the interruption bit is what happens when the authorities catch up with you and lock you up. And when you are interrupted, you know, I'm I'm always busy. I'm doing something. <laughs> and my my doing something is too mad. I can't, you know, I can't explain it. I'm not going to explain it. <laughs> but it's my business, not yours. <laughs> but but when the authorities come and they, they they you know it's always the police and they lock you up. And they, you know, they put you in a cell because there isn't enough provision for, you know, whatever. And 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 then you end up in a hospital, and then you're just interrupted. And 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 the interruption is so annoying, <laughs> and and it, it is so it's so uncivilized, you know. And 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 I know, and I can laugh at it as well. I'm absolutely, I'm on both sides of this, you know. I totally get it because you know I'm creating a dichotomy that when I'm saying I'm an atheist and when I'm mad, I'm driven by the hand of God. But when I'm being driven by the hand of God, the last thing I need to do is be interrupted by the police and then the psychiatric authority to lock me up and uh, you know take away, you know, take take away, take away my take away my freedom. You know, and incarceration is, you know, a serious, you know, I'm I'm being lighthearted about it, I hope. But incarceration is a really kind of serious problem with within the psychiatric world because it is so offensive to be have your liberty denied to you uh without a charge and without a trial and without a jury and you you know there's a signing of a piece of paper you know you're put in a room and in that room you have maybe i think about the times it's happened in the middle of the last time i'm in a room with a consultant psychiatrist and about four or five other people and i have no idea who any of them are and they're asking me stupid questions that i know the answers to and you know and they're asking me whether i've you know whether i've been careful with money or <laughs> whether i've you know, and I'm, for God's sakes, you know, and if, you know, if you read the Jesus story and it says, give away your money and give it to the poor. But if you give away your money to the poor these days, you're locked up in a psychiatric ward. Is there anything you'd like to add about your, your book that you feel we haven't uh, touched upon? Yeah, the bit that I'd add that I sense is the bit, the, the, there's, a, there's a tricky bit in the book not tricky, but it's not. It's not tricky. It just needs to be elaborated in this particular part, just to make clear. Mm. Is that because I write about Western psychiatry as a count is a count and the counterpart of the humanities and social sciences uh, with their in the way that they sanitize madness out of the subject matter which they address through the scholars that I address. And because most of these people are white, male, 
middle-aged, rich, Western. You know, the the book itself has a kind of is is because I'm critiquing both sides of this. I'm I'm a mad studies person critiquing both the humanities and social sciences and the psychiatric discourses. Is it is it those are my target? And they are all rich white men, mostly, and, and there are some women. Uh, but is it? But behind them, the subject matter that they're addressing is not restricted to Christianity. Mm. This is a subject matter that addresses the whole of human history. You know, when Eliad's addressing shamanism, he is primarily addressing a non-Western context. When Osterich is addressing possession, he's predominantly addressing a non-Western context. Uh, these are these are so so that the fact that I'm as it were a state because I'm addressing rich white men who are then studying, you know, the work the, the the record of the human history in its global totality throughout all the ages. It can sound a bit like I sometimes think I, you know it sounds like I'm just talking about Christianity or I'm just talking about these particular people or not. What I'm trying to argue is that madness is a part of the global human story within the narrative of diversity, whereby since the origins of humankind in the Rift Valley, there has been um, you know a. Few you people who have been mad and that madness has you know is part of this story throughout the whole of human history whereabouts can we uh find your book uh you can find it on um well anywhere actually um the my book is difficult at the moment because it costs 85 pounds or 115 dollars um so it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a, you know there's a paperback coming that'll be 26 pounds so that's a bit more reasonable but the the book that stands at the moment is that is a hard ass to buy so i'd encourage anyone who feels uh interested or in any way to go ask their library to buy a copy cuz that kind of works on a mm-hmm. recycling basis better than just buying your own private copy and putting it in the cupboard anyway but they, there is a there will be a paperback coming out which is more reasonably priced uh, at the moment that's but I mean you can get it from Amazon you can get it from Bloomsbury mm-hmm. anyway are you working on any more uh, books on madness uh, well I'm very interested in the psychedelic debate at the moment uh, I'm very interested in because the the thing about psychedelics is that before psychedelics were called psychedelics were called psychotomimetics which has which is mimicking of psychosis so you have the idea of the mimicking of psychosis and psychedelics and i think the way the psychedelics are going at the moment there's a kind of disjunct between psychedelics as a kind of positive constructive therapeutic medic you know the medicines versus the fact that psychiatry which one would anticipate being at the forefront of that sort of territory has been alienated by you know the years of illegality where psychiatry has just gone on and you know done second generation uh, uh, uh antipsychotics and so on and so forth and it's, it's kind of like taking its hand off psychedelics and away from them and they've been left in this kind of slightly countercultural uh, world. And I think there's a really interesting discussion there between psychedelic 
kids at the moment and psychiatry. And I think that I really want to write about that uh, because I think what that does is it allows the the bigger context of madness, you know, because if you say mimicking psychosis, I'm coming at it from experiencing psychosis and I'm saying that there's a conversation, a cross-pollination in the conversation between what's happening in psychedelics and what's happening in psychiatry and what's happening in mad studies and how that all works. So that's kind of what I'm interested in at the moment. Huh? Sounds very interesting. Um, and I hopefully will get to talk to you again about that if you publish a, publish any papers or books on it. But, um, sure, that's great. Yeah, I've thoroughly enjoyed this and uh, be sure I'll be sure to put all the links for the book in the description below. But Richard Savile-Smith, thanks very much. It's been a pleasure.